Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us on this Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. More importantly, it's Martin Luther King Day. It's also the day where on Twitter, every person with a political agenda tries to convince you that Martin Luther King was exactly lined up with them instead of actually spending time looking at the real legacy of Martin Luther King, which, of course, is that the promise of America is the promise for every American, regardless of race, and that we should be judging people on the content of their character and not their skin. So uh, it's a good day to pause and reflect on Dr. King's legacy. It's also uh, a day where we have good, bad, and crazy martinis, and we also have our Super Bowl teams. Neither of our teams, of course, were anywhere close. It'll be the Niners and the uh, Chiefs. Jim, pretty obvious from watching both of those teams yesterday that uh, our teams would have been annihilated, and it should be a good Super Bowl. It's really amazing to watch professional football, Greg, (laughs) where um, the players know what they're doing. The coaches are terrific. Look, I'm really excited about it. Um, This met a lot of my criteria for the, you know, what I wanted to see in a Super Bowl matchup, Greg, you got two great young quarterbacks. You got uh, two really, you know, one amazing running offense, one amazing passing offense. Um, Neither team is the New England Patriots, Greg, uh, which is really important. (laughs) And uh, what's more, there's no Colin Kaepernick. Oh, the the Niners would be better if they'd kept Kaepernick. Uh -uh. Nope. Nope. Apparently not. And congrats to the Niners. You're welcome for all those draft picks from the Bears for (laughs) trading up one spot to take Mitch Trubisky, which you used to turn into a vicious, vicious defense. But uh, I'm I'm sure it'll all work out for the Bears eventually. Indisputably, Greg, the Chicago Bears management built a championship team. It just wasn't the Chicago Bears. It just wasn't in Chicago, though which is what they're supposedly getting paid for. All right, on to our, our good martini here. Tomorrow, the impeachment trial officially begins. I think for the most part, they're going through a bunch of motions tomorrow for exactly what the format of the of the trial is going to look like. But uh, the upcoming trial was the focus of uh, one segment, at least, probably multiple segments, on Meet the Press yesterday, where Georgia Senator David Perdue joined Chuck Todd. One of the things that Chuck Todd was worried about was whether or not the Republicans were being hypocritical here. In other words, if uh, President Obama had been charged with what President Trump is charged with, would Republicans have the same attitude towards acquittal? And uh, first of all, it's a fun exchange here, as Chuck Todd mentions comments from Jeff Flake and how David Perdue responds to that, but then also how David Perdue explains how Republicans did act consistently with respect to President Obama. Jeff Flake wrote it this way, uh, your former Republican colleague from Arizona, Jeff Flake, a former senator. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Touche. But he said, he basically wrote in an op-ed, if President Obama did did this exact same thing, Would you be sitting here as comfortable defending what he did as you are President Trump? In Fast and Furious, he did exactly this. He withheld uh, evidence from the House of Representatives, and uh, the Republicans decided that uh, it was not obstruction of Congress. The Democrats agreed, and we did not pursue it. Nancy Pelosi, Nadler all said that that was not obstruction. And yet in this case, when the president decides to use executive privilege, they now all of a sudden say, oh, no, that is obstruction of Congress. So... Um, it, it's a little bit hypocritical, I think, to, to see some of the comments that are coming out now versus we, what we, happened back in 98. Jim, we've talked for a long time about whether or not the, uh, the abuse of power and the Ukraine allegations rise to the level of uh, impeachment. Uh, most folks on the right clearly don't believe so. 
I don't know that there's any coherent argument since the Democrats won't fight the subpoenas in court where the executive branch took them that somehow this uh, constitutes uh, obstruction of Congress. That is one of the weakest arguments I've seen in a very long time. Yeah, and it's where, look, it's a good point that this is getting less attention compared to the other article of impeachment uh, alleging an abuse of power. You know, we have a situation in which we are, our Constitution sets up a separation of powers. And the Constitution sets up, you know, so the idea is that when one branch of government gets into disagreement with another branch of government, it really should be settled by that third branch of government to be the tiebreaker, right? Sort it out, you know. And in, in executive privilege is exactly the sort of area where almost everybody in American politics would say, okay, president needs to get unvarnished advice. The president needs to have some expectation of confidentiality in all of his conversations, or at least some of the conversations he has and some of the, you know, uh, the matters he discusses with his advisors and with members of the executive staff. It doesn't extend to absolutely everything he does. It's, it's somewhere in the middle. And then the question is, where do you draw that line? I think reasonable people can have disagreements about where the right place to draw that line is. And I think it's also very fair to say that the Trump administration has pushed executive privilege to probably about the outer edge of what anyone would consider to be reasonable. But that having been said, if you think that the administration is improperly uh, uh, claiming executive privilege over something that executive privilege should not cover, that there should be a public right to know whatever was contained in documents, contained in memos, contained in which, oh, by the way, this was the argument about the, from the Republicans during Fast and Furious, right? The idea is like if you authorize a terrible plan and you're really embarrassed by it, you don't get to invoke executive privilege just to avoid being embarrassed. Um, there was no case of, you know, we need to, uh, uh, you know, protect the person who's giving uh, uh, advice to the president or something like that. But it should be sorted out by the judicial branch, right? This, this is what it's there for. You know, does the Constitution cover this? Does the Constitution not cover this? That's, you know, this is what separation... What If you have a situation in which Cong basically the, the House Democrats are right now asserting, we have a right to say you must turn over that document. And if you claim executive privilege, we will tell you, no, you can't invoke executive privilege. And if you continue to invoke executive privilege, after we tell you that you can't, we can remove you from office, Right. All the decision making remains in that one branch of, of government. There's no in interaction with the judiciary or something like that. And that's why I think that's a, a shaky one there. Um, you know, by the way, it'd be very interesting to look back. So I, I, I know the House held uh, Eric Holder in contempt of Congress. I'd be very curious to go back to see whether Jeff Flake ever had similar comments. Because that was back when Jeff Flake was conservative, Greg. Yeah, he was still in the House a long then. Time ago. <laughs> he was still in the House then. It was only the Senate when he became a squish. I love Jeff Flake telling senators what to do because, you know, he was so concerned about the way President <laughs> Trump was uh, conducting himself that he uh, decided not to run for re-election. That's not how I would do it, fellas. Okay, yeah, thanks, Senator. That's great. <laughs> you can tell he's held in high regard by his colleagues. Uh, that was, yeah, that was, they uh, miss him. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim, and let's talk about what's happening in Richmond today. We are recording this uh, just after noon on Monday, and as of right now, everything seems peaceful. Huge crowd gathered, as usual, the media underestimating the size of a roughly conservative crowd. I'm not sure that everyone who's in favor of the Second Amendment is a rock-ribbed conservative, but it's probably fair to say that most of them are. Uh, we'll get another uh, completely distorted uh, number later in the week with the March for Life. But nonetheless, uh, it's, it's peaceful. But the fact that this uh, march is even happening, this uh, lobby day, which happens every year, but obviously it's taking on greater significance this year due to the gun control agenda from Governor Northam and the Democratic majority in the legislature. Uh, the media is all worried that this is going to be Charlottesville 
and you almost get a sense, Jim, in some of their coverage that they want it to be Charlottesville 2.0. Here is CNN New Day, their morning show. Not sure who the anchor here is, but they're talking to L. Reeve, who also covered the uh, Charlottesville tragedy back in 2017. And uh, as they go through their discussion, uh, they're talking about some of these uh, white supremacists who had been arrested in the days before uh, because they were planning to uh, cause trouble here at this rally in Richmond. And here's the discussion that followed. As you point out, this one group uh, that we don't know a ton about, but this group, the base, uh, where uh, people were arrested, according to the FBI, last week, seven different people arrested. Why is this rally attracting some of those folks? Well, it's a good place to recruit, right? There are people who are feeling radicalized. There's less trust in government. Um, They're already maybe doing military exercises. They know how to shoot. The base is a survivalist white nationalist organization. They're very focused on what happens with the collapse of society. Like, Mm -hmm. could they keep going? Could they gain power? Jim, we'll get to another less uh, incendiary clip a little bit later, but it is uh, another example of the pathetic nature of the media today. So basically what CNN is telling us here is if you don't trust government, you're pretty much uh, susceptible to being a white supremacist because you're pretty much on the same ground. You know, I, I, from decision-making like that, uh, Greg, they must have been talking to Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano, right? He was the one who wrote up that memo that said, you know, if you're looking for extremist domestic terrorists and white nationalists, a lot of them like to have the Gadsden flag, which, of course, was the don't tread on me flag used by the Tea Party movement and all that stuff. It was this their description of what they considered to be a domestic terrorist and the traits associated with lots of law abiding, conservative, oftentimes rural Americans was pretty much indistinguishable. And you, if you're in law enforcement, you got to be looking at this and saying, particularly in some rural communities, and you're like, you just described like 50 percent of the guys in my community. You, you got to narrow it down. I can't, you know, I can't decide that anybody who's got an, you know, I don't trust the government bumper sticker is getting ready to blow up the uh, federal building somewhere in the Midwest. It's just not, you know, it is a, it's pretty clearly a smear. There's, we have this weird incentive structure, Greg, in that this, these, uh, this, the base, by the way, the base, by the way, is what Al Qaeda translates to. Right. So my first thought, Greg, is that the white nationalist marketing department really needs to go back to square one. Let's <laughs> rethink this one. I'm sorry, guy, you know. I'm sorry, was Hezbollah taken? We are the party of God. You know, that's uh, uh, problem number one. But so they, they say, we're going to show up. Here we come. And, you know, on the one hand, law enforcement does have to take it seriously. On the other hand, you know, because this is a relatively new group, you never know if this is, you know, two guys in their basement or whether this genuinely is uh, the sort of situation where you could create another circumstance like Charlottesville. The fact that Ralph Northam and, and, you know, we in Virginia are lucky, Greg, to live under such an inherently trustworthy law governor, um, <laughs> a broad bipartisan respect and appreciation about he's always clear. Probably if, if there's any tr- subject that we trust Ralph Northam on more than anything else, Greg, it, it's got to be race, right? Clearly. He gets this information. He says he's deeply disturbed by this. They have to put on all kinds of new security procedures. They have to fence off the area. He's acting like he's fully expecting some sort of all-out civil insurrection or something like that. It is worth noting, and obviously you know, people just heard that segment from CNN that really made it sound like this ominous thing. Right before we started taping, Greg, um, I believe Kate Baldwin is there and talking to uh, Sarah Ridner, their correspondent right there on the ground in Richmond. They said that the threats which caused Governor Northam to call for a state of emergency, quote, have simply not emerged the police are very clear in saying they have not had a single arrest during this rally, and we have been standing here all morning. 
I'm knocking on wood. That was right around noon today. Hopefully, by the time, hopefully, nothing else happens in the afternoon. Right now, this looks like an unbelievable amount of hype about a potential threat that did not emerge. And we're unfortunately at the point, Greg, where we can't be certain. I'd like to think that Ralph Northam and everybody else involved in this decision-making process made a good faith effort to simply, oh, we really thought there was going to be some sort of security threat here. And thus we had to bring out all the stops. Greg, honestly, I can't, I can't make that. I, I can't, I can't have faith in that decision. There's just too much water under the bridge where we've seen Ralph Northam lie about things, particularly related to race in order to demonize his opponents. Absolutely right, including Ed Gillespie. We're not just talking about the blackface uh, situation from his yearbook scandal, but uh, the way he demonized Ed Gillespie during the 2017 campaign uh, goes right down that same alley as well. Uh, Here's what the AP said heading into today's rally. Gun rights activists, some making deliberate displays of their military-style rifles, began to descend on Virginia's capital city Monday to protest plans by the state's Democratic leadership to pass gun control legislation. Several thousand activists, mostly white and male, Many clothed in camouflage and waving flags with messages of support for President Donald Trump appeared hours before the 11 a.m. rally was set to begin. So, uh, Jim, a lot of pejoratives in there, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of messaging there from my one one or two paragraphs from the AP. There was a time where the AP was the wire service you could more or less trust to just call it down the middle, you know, tell you what was going on and. You know, leave all the uh, you know the, the subte- you know, subtext or aspersions or, or suggestions or stuff like that alone. And apparently, not anymore, Greg. No, no. And now here's one more. Uh, Gabe Gutierrez of NBC is in Richmond covering this, and he puts out a tweet saying that the protesters are chanting, "We will not comply." And given the the sanctuary movement, that wouldn't have surprised anyone. And in fact, they did say that. But the video he posted, this is the video he posted in conjunction with, "Here are the protesters chanting, "We will not comply." So if you missed that, that's the Pledge of Allegiance, not people chanting, we will not comply. He got a lot of pushback. So then he posted video of people chanting, we will not comply, and said, I told you that's what they were chanting, uh, not even admitting that what probably happened is he, he just goofed up his clips, but uh, he can't even admit that he posted the wrong clip. So there's your media in 2020, Jim. Yeah, look, you know, we all make mistakes. Um, but if you want to talk about the kind of, you know, our arguably small mistake, seemingly small mistake, maybe is a good way of putting it, that ends up you know, just pouring an enormous amount of gasoline onto the fire. Before I saw the second clip, which by the way, some time went by, uh, when he first initially posted this and he says, you know, they're chanting, you know, we will not comply. And then you listen to it. It's the Pledge of Allegiance. I was ready to say, dear NBC News, I'm sure he's a very nice guy, but he seems to hallucinate things that aren't happening. And that's a very bad trait in a reporter. Um, now, obviously, it did happen a few moments later. He mixed up the two uh, uh, bits of video that he was putting out on Twitter. Okay, it happens. But having said that, it really does. You know, when you come out and say they're doing X and the evidence you present is not X, is it in fact Y, people are going to look at and say, ah, there they go again. The media is lying about us. They're so committed to a uh, narrative that makes us look like a bunch of you know, gun-toting maniacs that they will lie about us, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this we will not comply, you know, Greg, what is it called when, like the the you know, what is it called when you you are at a protest? They tell you to leave, and you don't, and you end up getting arrested. Resisting arrest. 
right? I mean, it's, it's non-compliance. It's not, you know, like that happens all the time in American politics. And usually you go to, you know, they take you down to the station, you get a ride in a police van, they book you. It's like a $50 fine. Most it's not, you know, something, oh, you're going to be in jail for a long time, you know, non-compliance, right? It, it is that sense of, we will not comply. I have decided that your law, even if it is legal, is unjust and I will do you know, peace, peaceful resistance. Right? That, this is a strong tradition of this in American life. Some people would argue that's exactly what changed this country, right? So this idea that by chanting, we are not, we will not comply. You know, this, this is not saying we will overthrow the government. This is not saying we're going to, you know, like it's, it's so clear they wanted this to turn into uh, something ugly and horrible and something that would demonize every gun owner in, in Virginia. And it hasn't turned out to be that. And I don't, you know, ideally you look at this and say that people go, oh, oh, we got this wrong. Okay, we got to do differently next time. Greg, I hate to say it, at this point, I have no reason to believe they've learned anything from this experience. No. They picked an odd holiday to uh, condemn large protests, too. That's uh, <laughs> curious, yeah. curious, to say the least. But uh, anyway. Greg, I have heard the FBI is wary of these organizations. <laughs> and if there's anything we should remember on Martin Luther King Day, you can always trust the assessment of the FBI. <laughs> They would never overstep their bounds when it comes to investigating different protest movements. If, if anybody never. can determine a legitimate political grievance from an illegitimate one, it's the Federal Bureau of Investigation. <laughs> By the way, Greg, for the day you and I get investigated, on behalf of all the dedicated agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I don't hate all of you. You're all wonderful people. I know you try hard. You have a tough job. Please don't kick down my door. Exactly. We both know wonderful people in the FBI, but their track record on this sort of thing is not exactly. And we don't mean Johnson, and we don't mean Johnson. We no. the other guys. Well, no. Sadly, they're not with the FBI anymore. But uh, <laughs> that was that was a tragic day for the Bureau at Nakatomi Plaza. Anyway, uh, when it comes to uh, the media demonizing people based on uh, sex and race and political beliefs, uh, you know, the political correctness is clearly running amok. Uh, we talk about it all the time here. And another good place to listen more about it is the Mock and Daisy Common Sense cast. Uh, two women, also known as Chicks on the Right, Mock and Daisy, uh, they talk about everything from parenting to social media, the dangers of political correctness, the importance of marriage. They talk about the issues that actually matter to you. They're smart, they're funny, they're conservative, and uh, most of what they talk to uh, is eventually tied back to something political, uh, but a lot of it strikes close to home as well. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, they say that if you want to make America great again, you've got to start in your own home. So to find out more about the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast, go to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. All right, Jim. Uh, let's go to our crazy martini now. And in a move reminiscent of LeBron James's decision, and not the decision to kowtow to China, but his free agent decision about a decade ago to leave Cleveland and eventually sign with Miami, the New York Times decided to make a big PR splash with, hey, which Democrat are we going to endorse? So they even uh, were part of some sort of uh, TV show about uh, interviewing all the candidates and eventually coming up with uh, an endorsement that got revealed on Sunday. So a lot of speculation along the way. And in the end, they didn't have the clarity of LeBron James because uh, he at least chose one team. The New York Times chose two. They've decided that there's three ways forward in America. There's the Trump way, which they clearly hate. Or there's the moderate uh, Democratic way, the realist way, as they put it. Or there's the progressive Democratic way. So they decided to make one Democratic endorsement in each of those two camps. And uh, for the progressives, they picked Elizabeth Warren. And for the realists, they picked Amy Klobuchar. So they said they were picking the two people best fit for America to lead uh, on those two different ideologies. 
Jim, I happen to think those were the only non-white males still uh, in this race. So that's probably why they went in that direction. But what do you make of it? So a couple of days ago, I heard, or I should say, one of my National Review colleagues heard through the grapevine that the endorsement was going to be a surprise. And we kind of like, oh, you know, I mean, obviously there was no, no way of verifying what it was going to be until it came out. But we're like, okay, well, you, you by everybody's, you know, uh, first guess, the, the, the candidate who appears to have been genetically engineered in a lab to be the perfect New York Times editorial board candidate is Elizabeth Warren. Um, they, you know, yes, te- you have know, some people, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're the New York Times, they're the establishment. Yeah, yeah, but if you read the editorials, they've been drifting pretty far left lately. And so the question was, okay, would they go with Biden? Eh, he's the safe choice. It would be seen as kind of a rebuke of all of the more progressive candidates. They probably weren't going to do that. Uh, Sanders, that's, that might be a little too hot for the New York Times editorial board. You know, they, 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 well, wait a second, wait a second. They also represent New York, Wall Street. Not everybody on the editorial board was likely to sign off on that one. They've been recording all of their interviews with the candidates, which actually I think is a terrific idea. And the, you know, they had this exchange where they basically, one of the questions to Buttigieg, uh was a version of like, you worked for a company that fixed the price of bread. Um, and it was this, you know, economically illiterate diatribe in the form of a question. And Buttigieg is like, you know, I actually, no, I worked for a consulting company. My client was this one. I was not, you know, when they were doing the price fixing the bread, it was not when I was there. Nothing I did for that company related to this issue at all. You know, uh, Buttigieg kind of slapped him down. It was kind of, kind of satisfying to see that. So, uh, okay, he lost that guy. They're definitely kind of endorse, not going to endorse Buttigieg. Um, but here's the thing. So I, I would encourage people, if you care, and I understand there's probably some listeners out there who'd be like, oh, I don't care. But if you want to do a little bit like criminology of, of trying to figure out, okay, what's going on behind the scenes in the New York Times? How does that institution work? What, how, do, how do they reach their decisions? First of all, read the editorial, uh, because it doesn't treat the two candidates equally. It is not, oh, they're both perfectly equally good. Um, they say nice things about almost all the candidates, but the, but like, the section about Warren is not really... Um, it, it's mixed. Uh, it, it is a there is a forthright acknowledgement of some of her flaws, and I think the section that just kind of jumped out at me is um, uh, where she says, "quote She sometimes sounds like a candidate who sees a universe of us versus them's, who in the general election would be going up against a president who has already divided America into his own version of them and us." Warren often casts the net far too wide, placing the blame for a host of maladies from climate change to gun violence at the feet of the business community, when the onus is on society as a whole. The country needs a more unifying path. Greg, this is the endorsement. <laughs> Imagine what they'll say when they don't like her. So, like, that's kind of interesting. But then you read this, like, so that's like the, that, you know, the first third, uh, let's say the first quarter of the editorial kind of lays out their thinking. The second quarter is about Warren, and it, it includes praise. No two ways about it. Uh, and it basically is this acknowledgement that they're not sure that, you know, electing a Democrat is going to fix the country. They think it needs something much bigger and bolder and more radical. Um, but then the second half, really, it's like a love letter to Amy Klobuchar. Saying this as somebody who doesn't, you know, would probably never vote for Amy Klobuchar and don't you know, particularly find her uh, appealing as a presidential candidate. You know, this, they make probably about as strong and persuasive a case as they can, pointing out that she has worked with Republicans in the Senate and she has managed to get stuff done. Uh, they say she's the very definition of Midwestern charisma, grit, and stick to it, etc. In other words, this second half is a really full-throated endorsement of Amy Klobuchar. There aren't really any caveats other than, well, we're just not sure she's going to win. 
So it says, it thinks to me, Greg, like, you know, I, I look at this endorsement and I see an editorial board that really wanted to endorse Amy Klobuchar and just Amy Klobuchar. Greg, I want you to imagine the scenario where the New York Times doesn't endorse Elizabeth Warren, like a week before the Iowa caucuses. I mean, like that, that dooms her, right? That's like, you know, well, that's it. She's already in fourth place in most of the polls. That's it. But it's, at least it's a close fourth place. This, this would, you know, this would be a, a stake in the heart. And the other thing is that Amy Klobuchar probably isn't going to get any delegates unless she has this magic last-minute surge, which, by the way, these sorts of things have happened in Iowa in the past. It's not crazy and unthinkable, but she's usually at the, you know, most polls, she's at that 7 8 9%, and you need 15% to walk away with any delegates. So if Klobuchar gets nothing on February 3rd, does she quit the race? Oh, I think you know, so. New Hampshire's not going to be better for her. Nevada's not going to be better for her. South Carolina's not going to be better for her. And on Super Tuesday, yes, Minnesota votes, but they have fifteen. They have fourteen other states. So, for, for Amy Klobuchar, it's you know, surprise everybody in Iowa or go home. And I suspect the New York Times editorial board is we're going to endorse somebody, and she's going to come in fifth in Iowa. And I think that frightened them, and I think they backed away. So, anyway, that's my take. Probably more than most people care, but uh, for some of us, the inner workings of an institution like the Time are pretty interesting, just from a purely sociological point of view. True. And I think uh, Bernie will actually try to make hay out of this because now the corporate industrial media is uh, going for Elizabeth Warren. She <laughs> yes. can't possibly be the, the true progressive in this race. And you mentioned Klobuchar. And if she doesn't get any delegates or doesn't do very well at all in Iowa, she should get out. But if she follows the John Kasich model, she will stay in. She'll win Minnesota. And that'll give her an argument to stay in for two additional months while getting creamed everywhere else around the country. Um, I know she talked about her family a lot, Greg. Was her father a mailman? <laughs> I, I think don't... that's the trait. I think that's the gene that carries the stay in the race far too long. Um, the only other, the other way is the argument is that whether this was seen as a backdoor way of kneecapping Biden by making the argument that, you know, well, we're going to endorse Warren because we really want her. But if we want to help anybody else, we want to help the other moderate who nobody thinks has a real shot of winning the nomination. That's a three-level chess uh, approach of thinking about why they made the decision the way they did. Well, we'll see if the Iowa voters care what the New York Times has to say. It is interesting to, to check out, though. And so, Jim, uh, crazy start to the week already. See what we have tomorrow with impeachment trial beginning in earnest. Uh, can't wait, Greg. Can't wait. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a great review. And join us on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Have a great day, everyone.